0: I'm Philippe Rose. This is a conversation among friends working in international affairs. We share stories about our life in the real world and beyond the noisy headlines. And we hope a few interesting insights come out. Today I speak with Neri Martinez. Neri is the granddaughter of Cubans who moved into the immigrant melting pot of Florida to start a new life after Castro's revolution. Neri felt an early calling to work on furthering the rights of the homeless, the vulnerable, minorities and women. She recognized her passion for politics and started working on campaigns for the Republicans before moving to DC. In this conversation, we talk about finding our speed, recognizing our biases, and how openness to all foods means openness to others. Neri, I would love to uh, ask you to travel back in time a little bit to uh, um, to growing up uh, in uh, in Florida, I believe it was Miami, uh, And you, you, yeah, you, you grew up um, as the uh, the daughter of uh, immigrants from Cuba. And I would love if you can describe how it was like. What was the atmosphere? What were you uh, discussing at the dinner table? Um, yeah. How is your 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 childhood growing up in miami
1: yeah um yeah, it's a very interesting and unique childhood uh in america <laughs> uh, because you you live in America but you don't really feel like you're in America, and that's because almost everybody uh that I grew up with in the community in Miami and it's very common in Miami to grow up under these communities is that almost everybody I grew up with, many of them. Also, were refugees from Cuba, and if not, they were mm-hmm. refugees from other countries— Haiti or mm-hmm. Nicaragua. Uh, could be the Dominican Republic. Could be Honduras. You know, could be Argentina, um, Brazil, Venezuela. Almost everybody in Miami came from another country, and so um, certainly, Miami has a very diverse but short history as a city you know, it was only incorporated about, you know, 120, 150 years ago. It was in part of the the fabric of the United States and the country in the mm. same way that other regions were, like the West or the South, you know. Um, and so most of the migration <clears throat> to South Florida came, you know, way after the Civil War, and certainly not even 150 years ago. The vast majority of people that uh, have populated the city uh, for the past 50 or 60 years have been from another country. And so you grow up technically in America uh, as an American citizen, but with family that had to leave another country. So culturally, you know, you grow up with essentially, you know, one foot in and one foot out. And I wouldn't say out because you tend to feel even doubly loyal to the United States. You feel a sense of patriotism and loyalty to the U S even more so than people that were not in that situation because many of the people in Miami were exiled or had to escape or had to forcibly leave their country. So they weren't necessarily one foot in the United States and one foot out of the United States, but they never wanted to leave the United States again and they generally yeah. didn't go back to their countries, but you grew up in a very bicultural existence and with yeah. an understanding of a comparison of life from two different countries that is very unique I think in the united states
0: that's really interesting so 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 uh, the way you describe it is the uh, the childhood environment was paradoxically extremely multicultural mm-hmm. but at the same time uh united by this um uh, concept or symbol of America yeah. as the, the the welcoming home that unites us, like this idea of being American, seemed to be the thing that united you across uh, different communities, whether uh, from Haiti or Honduras or, or 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 Cuba. It sounds quite fascinating because you you must all have been bringing. I mean, di- different different ways of different celebrations, different foods, different ways of uh, of, of uh, conceptualizing family life and social life. But somehow, uh, this this Americanness united you across these kind of uh, cultural divides in a way.
1: Yeah, and it, and there were it was a spectrum. So for some people yeah. that emigrated to the United States, if they emigrated and they could still go back to their country of origin or the country of their parents' origin. They grew up biculturally and they did enjoy living in the United States. Uh, They had different privileges living here than they did in the country of origin or the country of their parents' origin. Um, But they were nostalgic for the culture and they kept going back and forth and back and forth. And Mm, most often what happened is that's how you ended up with such a diverse culture in Miami is that, Let's say you missed uh, empanadas, like you miss eating them. So then you open up an empanada yeah. shop, and voila, then you resolve this problem. So anything that they were used to culturally in this country, they replicated in America, and that's why Miami doesn't mm. seem very similar to other cities because mm. they yeah. replicated a piece of their culture in the United States, uh, but for exiles and i would <clears throat> classify certainly cuban americans in that category but to a certain degree haitians you know where it's difficult economically for them to ever go back or back and forth people from nicaragua that came in the 1970s during the sandinistas like it was difficult for them to go back to the, their country or even argentina that suffered an economic crisis where maybe they wanted to go back there's nothing there left to go back to venezuelans some people Uh, didn't have a choice but to make the United States their home. But to accommodate their cultural preferences, they just basically recreated what they enjoyed in Miami. Hmm. That's what made it an interesting place to grow up. And back to your question, what did you talk about at the dinner table? We spent most of our time talking about other countries. And our life there and the life that was and that may be, or that our family had or the culture that we left behind, but how grateful we were to be in the United States, but maybe we needed to make more empanada shops so that we would be more comfortable in this country. But that that, (laughs) almost all conversations revolved around the life of politics of culture of another country.
0: Yeah. So you were born in the US, yeah, I believe. Yeah, born and
1: you. raised in Miami.
0: You grew up with this. This must have been very, very, a little odd to, to, to then be hearing about this country you, you'd never, I, I guess you'd not been to. Yeah. Like the spectrum of something from outside. Yeah. This is what must be very, very interesting. It was
1: bizarre, but it only seemed bizarre after I left Miami. Growing up there, it didn't seem very bizarre because that's what this everybody is, talked yeah. about, you know? So uh, <laughs> Miami has this festival, for example, called Cuba Nostalgia. Cuba nostalgia and it's like a festival every year that everybody goes to where they experience i mean a nostalgic life of Cuba pre-revolution and it's a whole festival that brings nostalgia into your life but only your grandparents really knew this Cuba but you only knew this Cuba from stories but you went to this festival and you got the whole experience again too you know it's it's a little bit bizarre now that i think about it but to, to, At the time, everybody wanted that because that was the closest we were ever going to come to our roots. For many of us, our parents left and we couldn't even go back. The Cuban government would consider me, even as an American citizen, because I was the child of someone that was born in Cuba, they can consider me a Cuban citizen. So if I went over there and, you know, say I got in trouble with the law, they would try me in their courts as a Cuban citizen, according to their constitution which is a very dangerous position to be in. And so it isn't safe for you to even go to Cuba necessarily and try to Mm, uh, get in touch with these roots. These roots are all in your mind. They're in your imagination. They're in your grandparents' history. And all you can do is recreate and try to understand that. Uh, But it's not something that you're going to experience in real life.
0: And could you share a bit, what was your grandparents' history? Or how did you, first of all, how how did you find out about that? Like, how old were you? Was it discussed... When you were young yeah. already, I'd love also to, to, to hear what their story. Yeah. Was. So
1: um, my grandfather, and my mother's side, he had a business in Cuba and he was not political for, by nature. But his grandfather had emigrated from the Canary Islands, Spain. And then uh, my great grandfather built an immigrant life, a successful life in Cuba. And because of that, my grandfather was exiled in 19... Um, 19- 1960, 1960, 1961 is probably when he left. And so they weren't political necessarily, but uh, they were important enough in their community that it was a threat to the government. So they came in, confiscated all their property, locked everybody in prison, my uncles as well. They would have gotten life or probably the death penalty. Um, They were able to escape and they never looked back. And for the rest of my grandfather's life, The country did not exist on the map. Like Cuba did not exist. You did not want to hear anything about it. Wow. On my father's side, my grandmother was a university professor very much ahead of her time. She was probably born in the the 20s and she didn't get married Mm, probably until she was about 35. She was very progressive, sort of a feminist type. And then she was in the university and she had a doctorate and and she was a teacher. To be a university professor tenured in Cuba, as a woman at the time, was very progressive. But uh, somebody outed her as a counter-revolutionary, quote-unquote. And at the time, you could just basically say anything you wanted about anyone that you liked, and the government would come and exile you. So that's what happened to her. She wasn't political either.
0: So when you mean exile, is you, you're, you're basically uh, targeted by yeah. the government, and um, you know that you're going to be uh, jailed or, or, or shot. And so your only option is to find a way out. Is that? Is yeah. that it or does the government actually kick you out? The
1: government at the time, for some people, were giving them the option to leave and never come back. When the Castro regime took over, they realized that they weren't going to be able to maintain the power very long if there were still intellectuals, business leaders, people of prominence to counter them. And so, at the very beginning of the revolution, if you weren't, you know, shot or jailed, you were not given the option, but told, well, okay, leave and leave everything behind. It was a full confiscation of property. You couldn't take engagement rings, wedding rings, but you were never allowed to come back. And you knew that if you did try to come back, the likelihood that you were going to be jailed or executed was high. So a lot of people just didn't. And then they started brand new in another country. I wouldn't say that my family's story is even very exceptional I know that because that's what people talk about in Miami.
0: If I understand right, it created a kind of a, a glue in mm-hmm. the community, uh, like a, a belief in 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 um, in America as a, as a, as a shelter, and also, uh, is that right? Is that fair to say that the um, the political leanings of the community were, were quite quite um, quite similar under the circumstances? Well,
1: I would tell you that in Cuba there wasn't the same political environments necessarily that there is in the United States. There wasn't really an equivalence. And a, a lot of people, middle-class and upper-class and educated people, did vote for Castro uh, and did want mm. to see changes uh, in the country and uh, did buy into his propaganda and did vote for him, including my grandparents. Yeah. I have this funny story. My grandmother almost went on a date with Fidel Castro because he saw her at a baseball game. Yeah, it's <laughs> really funny. And she'd always <laughs> laugh about this. <laughs> But you know she's not here to verify all the details, so I won't get into them. But people were very excited about him at the beginning, you know, and then he started to really reveal his colors and show himself, and then it became a really big problem for most people in the country. But yeah, that's that's how it was at the time. So it's not like people really understood political leanings, and it wasn't like there was a um, a real active uh, formidable democracy in the country either. It was just like one yeah. dictatorship to another in a way. And so when they came to the U.S., it's not like they understood democracy or political parties necessarily. As they grew in the United States as a community, as they assimilated, as they gained citizenship, as they were able to gain the right to vote, and they started to pay more attention, maybe some were Democrat and some were Republican. And uh, probably at the beginning, a lot of them were were democratically leaning. But um, I think a series of Uh, foreign policy missteps by democratic presidents and probably the uh,
0: towards Cuba, Yeah, towards Cuba.
1: I would say, uh, uh, you know, there's a lot of books on this, but Kennedy's um, handling of and execution of the Bay of Pigs was a, a big failure for the Cuban community. It was big embarrassments. I would say Carter uh, Carter's view of the dictatorship at the time was kind of a turnoff. And then by the time Reagan came around, then Uh, spoke about certain uh, core values that very much aligned with uh, Cuban-American core values. I think Mm -hmm. a switch had been made, but it it took some time, you know, and it was, I would say, at a presidential level, a series of both foreign policy and domestic messaging that made a lot of Cubans uh, more to the right. And I would say since then, there's always been a battle for the Cuban vote in a way. And and their hearts and minds, but they do tend to lean lean, uh, Republican or they tend to lean right at the very least in uh, Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways, and uh, that's to be expected uh, from a lot of communities that were exiled from a country that was taken over by a leftist dictatorship. So you'll see very similar um, trends uh, among the Vietnamese Americans, among Korean Americans, Venezuelans, and the Nicaraguenses also. And I, I think a lot of it has to do with when they, when they were exiled from their country of origin or from their parents' country of origin, that country was taken over by a leftist dictatorship. So then they come to this country and they don't really want anything to do with a sort of leftist yeah. ideology. So that's that's very common.
0: I'd love to hear a little bit also how, how you got into politics. You, you also, um, if I understand, if you're very... Uh, active in in the the human rights Mm -hmm. aspects. Um, I'd I'd love to hear how you got into that.
1: Um, So just like my parents, when they were in Cuba, or my grandparents, I I wasn't political. You know, I didn't grow up in a political (laughs) family. Uh, The things that I'm discussing, that I'm talking about,
0: you actually grew up in a religious. Yeah, my father was a reverend. More a religious, yeah. My
1: father is still an active yeah. reverend, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. My grandfather was a small business owner. I grew up in, you know, working retail and going to church. Like, that was our life. Yeah. So we weren't political. I, I actually didn't know much about politics. All the things that I'm talking about, these were not political conversations from political families. These were regular conversations mm-hmm. from everyday families. <laughs> this is how we we talked about the world. But you know, I guess I just listened a lot in, in that aspect, and I was always um interested in advocacy for people and governments and uh, when I was in high school, uh, I was uh, sent to d c twice, one for like a a model u n model congress type yeah. you know stimulation and then a model u n type simulation and those were both in high school, and I really enjoyed uh, those experiences and I came to d c and I learned a lot about how congress works and you know, the UN. And when I was in the UN, I represented like the Human Rights Council as part of, uh, you know, like model UN mm-hmm. activities. Yeah. And I became interested in human rights, you know, because I it was for me a very much a, a justice issue and a, coming from a religious family, a people issue. And uh, I really was interested yeah. in, in getting involved in human rights. And I was at FIU at the time. I was studying business and politics and political science. And I was recruited by an organization that focused on uh nonviolent civic resistance movements in cuba and supporting the dissident movements and i was like oh cuba where my family's from and oh cuba is you know big perpetrator of human rights violations like this is interesting i would like to be involved i would like to learn more and so goes the story and that was basically what started my um interest in policy or politics if you will and uh i learned a lot you know i was just a student but um you know, I became interested in that and I started doing uh, some work for them and, and I, I sort of found uh, a path that no one in my family had taken before that seems very natural to me. Mm-hmm. And uh, in just following that path, I, I spent 10 years in the private sector and doing community work until eventually I realized that um, I was probably meant to do something else and I really wanted to live in D.C. And so, you know, voila, here I am. Yeah, yeah.
0: And when you say you spent ten years so, uh, do, doing uh, private sector work and community work, can you share a little bit what what was that like? So, so was it uh, still to do with uh, um, kind of human rights, immigration issues? What, what was the the community work you were doing?
1: Yeah. So, because my uh, my fa- I came from a family of small business owners, but my father had pursued a career in ministry. I felt like you know I had two paths in life. You either go make mm, money yeah. and you give back. To the community, you find a ministry, or you go pursue ministry full time, and then you figure out how to feed yourself some other way because this, <laughs> if you're doing it right, it probably doesn't pay. So, uh, so this is how I grew up. I just thought I had this option or that option, and I hadn't figured out whether I wanted to pursue a a business interest full time and then give back, or pursue a ministerial or community nonprofit type work full time and then figure out how to generate income on the side. And so I tried multiple different things. I was a social worker. I helped a homeless transition into housing for a couple of years. And I was also in real estate, commercial real estate. It was a good time to do that in Miami. My last uh, private sector gig was uh, selling elevators. It was great, great uh, business. And I enjoyed it. But, you know, I tried a couple of different career paths to figure out what would work for me. And I just realized that um, at some point you come to realize, right, like who you are and uh, where your skill set lies and where you're probably best suited by leveraging that skill set. And so, yeah, I just thought I should pursue a career in politics where I should move to D.C. I didn't know what that looked like. I didn't know what I would do necessarily, but Mm-hmm. I, I made that decision to do that.
0: So maybe before before asking mm-hmm. you to 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 share a bit like your your transition into into uh, into uh, GOP mm-hmm. politics itself, I'd I'd love to hear a little bit about your work in in with homelessness actually, mm-hmm. how, how, because this is a, a, a subject, I mean, every time I visit the US, it's a subject that intrigues mm-hmm. me a lot. The the the, the 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 scale of the issue, um, I, I just would love to 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 find out like. What did you learn doing that, um, and and w- whether it 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 shaped your 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 views about individual responsibility versus the responsibility of society, for example? Mm.
1: Yeah, working with the homeless, uh, I learned that winning can take on many different aspects. Mm. The majority of the homeless community in this country um, is either uh, mentally ill and and or drug addicted and or products of the system and don't really know anything else. And that's a big percentage, right? A very small percentage of the homeless community.
0: Product of the system as in product of the homeless. Or just a continuum
1: of care system or a government system or um, a government dependency system, right? And so uh a very small percentage of the homeless community in the United States is a situational problem. Like you lost Mm -hmm. your job, can't pay the bills, you're on the streets, you need help to get back up again, but you're fully aware, you're not spending money on drugs, you're not mentally ill, you can work, you just need help, a safety net and 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 a way to get back into society working like Those are the easy clients because they want help. We have, you know, ways to help and then they get back on their feet, but Mm, that's not the majority of the homeless community in the United States. And so if you're a caseworker and your job is to help someone who is on the streets go into permanent housing and sustain that life, then
0: that's what you are doing, right? Yeah.
1: Then the percentage of people, clients, if you will, right, that are going to be successful with your help is less than 20. But if you can get Mm, to 20, it's a very big win. And if you can help people who were drug addicted come off drugs, who were mentally ill get the right care and the right medication to be in society who have been in generational poverty and generational systems, come off the government system and live independently. Those are huge wins. They're rare, mm, yeah. but they're huge. And so you work tirelessly to get a 15 to 20% win.
0: That sounds like really, really yeah, hard it was, work to, to to go through. To face so mm-hmm. many stories of, of misery, repeated misery and repeated misery and that knowing that even if you put everything you've got into these individuals, only, only one in five at best. Was oh, misery. yeah.
1: It's less than that. Say so, Yeah. One yeah. in five is... Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was really tough uh, in that sense, but you had to manage expectations. But you made sure that anybody mm-hmm. that came your way that really wanted help, that you knew you could help. You did everything you could for them. You had to not take it personal or you had to live with the fact that some things, you know, are the way they are if you cannot change them. Or if other people don't want to change for themselves, you know, you just, you just learned, you know, how to to balance your desire to help with, you know, your ability to actually do so.
0: And I'm sure there were many uh, cases that stuck in your mind, but are are there a few stories that really kind of, Changed you, that stayed with you, or maybe even shaped the, the way you approach uh, policy yeah
1: i um I come to everything very idealistic. There was this one woman who was homeless on the streets for many years. she was very afraid of people, she was clearly mentally ill. I knew that I could help her in some way if I could just know her name. I could hmm. put her name in the system, I can try to something it was a very long time ago but this is all i remember is that i went on a mission for like many months just to gain her trust enough to get her name just wanted (laughs) to know her real name and i knew that if i get if i got her actual name first and last name maybe we can get somewhere and uh (laughs) everyone told me you'll never get her name she's she's been on the streets for many years. She doesn't want any help. She's afraid of everybody. And I was like, no, no, I'm, she seems like a nice lady. I, want to get her name. I didn't get her name and little things like that, you know, impacted me. There were some situations where um, there were women that came in with their partners or something. And I had to split them up because it was male and female housing, male and female caseworkers. But one woman came in, she was very pregnant. She came in with another gentleman and uh clearly he was he was very abusive to her like she he was probably into drugs or selling them and she was either on drugs or something and uh anyways uh they split up the couple into male and female housing and i only handled female casework and uh i helped her file a restraining order against him and then i helped put her in a safe housing uh to protect victims of domestic violence And he knew that I did that. And she was pregnant, probably with his child. And he was very upset that I was as effective as I was in taking him out of the picture. Mm, So when I saw him after hours in South Beach one day, and he gave me sort of a look like, You took my woman and child away, I realized in that Mm. moment that it's time to go home and maybe look behind me. probably not leave my house for the rest of the day, you know, (laughs) I did have some moments like that, but I wasn't afraid. I looked him dead in the eye and I was like, yeah, well, and what it's my job, but I would walk to work from, I had a place in South Beach. I'd walk to work and the homeless would be like, you know, calling me out and saying, I said, look, I'll see you at 830 office opens. You want to talk to me? You go over there. (laughs) And uh, it wasn't interesting, but I tried, I tried the best I could. There were some clients that did, I helped them. I did everything to find all the resources for them. And so I had a special nickname like at Salvation Army because (laughs) I was very aggressive uh, in trying to find every benefit, every government program possible for the clients that wanted help. I would find all the help that was available to them and I would be relentless until they helped my client. Yeah, I don't think they'd seen that in a social worker before. But you know, <laughs> uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. But you had you had to learn to live with a lot of disappointment.
0: You must have been quite quite torn because it's like you have to be emotionally involved, but at the same time you know that the chance of success is low. And then the way I, the way you describe it is a lot of these people were affected. Like there was a dependence with the. The government services mm-hmm. themselves that perpetuated this yeah. situation and so you're in a way trying to use more of these services to help these people when these services may, may be perpetuating the very problem you were trying to solve so i mean i guess at the time you were fully committed mm. to 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 helping these people there probably wasn't that much time to really uh have a philosophical thought about all this but maybe maybe i can ask you how do you look back now on this that you're now, now that you're more in a, in a kind of electoral politics setting, how has this sh- kind of shaped the, the way you look at policy making?
1: I think it was probably the first time that I realized the truth about life that I still hold uh, very closely uh, is that in life, you can only worry about what you can control. <laughs> and what you cannot control, you, don't, you can't worry about it. Now, I'm a person of faith. So I put things, everything into two buckets in the morning. I just say, okay, bucket A is everything within my control. Bucket B is everything outside of my control. And I call bucket B, give it to Jesus. It's not for me to handle. Now, when I do this exercise mentally and I'm okay putting things in the give give it to Jesus bucket, Because I still have to give it to somebody, my mind, you know, but, and I focus only on bucket A. My mind is clearer and, and I control more than I think I can. Oftentimes we struggle with anxiety and worry and stress a lot in our working lives and in our personal lives, but anxiety, stress, worry, frustration, all of it stems from our, our lack of control. We cannot control something, therefore we're stressed about it, or we're anxious about it, or we worry about it. But the reality is it comes from a rooted nature. Like we know we cannot control said thing, but when you're worried and you're anxious and you're frustrated, you can't see clearly what's in front of you, the things that you do have to make decisions on, the things that you do have to do, the things you can control, because your mind is clouded with all this worry and anxiety and frustration about the things you can't control. So the sooner you take that off your plate and you focus only on the things that you know are in your control, uh, then you come to realize there's more in life you can control than not. Now, if something moves from bucket A to bucket B, so be it. You realize you're trying to control it. You can't move it to bucket B. Now, bucket B, the things you've put there that you can't control, life can take turns and you realize you can't control something and then you move it to bucket A. And that's fine too, but you have to be very clear on not worrying about what you can't control so that you can spend all your mental, emotional, physical, professional, personal energy on the things that you can control. And this was my approach as a caseworker. I knew that my metrics every year were going to be 15 to 20% at best. Later, when I sold elevators, I had to sell a certain percentage of what I bid to be successful every year. And yeah. when I worked with case uh, case management, when I worked with the homeless clients, I knew that less than 15% or 10% of the homeless community actually comes into permanent housing. So if I could get past 15%, I was winning. That was a win. Yeah. If I would have thought that over 50% or 90% was a win, I would have been constantly frustrated. But I redefined winning. I understood what was within the scope of possibility and I focused on what I could control and nothing else.
0: I find what you say extremely powerful. I mean, it's something that we often say, uh, focus on what you can control and all of that. Um, I I have to just share that for for me, this is still something that I, I, I struggle with a lot, worrying a lot about stuff that I don't control and trying to look for meaning, in, 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 especially in things that, like, how can I make a, a systemic change when actually a lot of that is not in my control? But there are things that are in my control and that if I put my heart and energy in it and I pay attention, actually, um, I have made an impact. It's hard to practice, but I'm, I'm really, really glad that you were sharing that. Um, that I, f- I find that very, very inspiring. And um, I'd mm-hmm. love to maybe uh, ask you to, to share a bit more about your your life today um it, you you transitioned into um something that you felt inside was you you mentioned before actually that that um you'd almost been resisting accepting uh that this was your calling and I'd, I'd love to hear how you got into that
1: it's like anything you try a bunch of things in life and at some point you come to realize this is who I am <laughs> and uh this is what I do best or this is what I can do better than another person, or this is what I really enjoy, or this is what drives me, or this is what I'm passionate about. And you just have to follow that prompting. I think real success is defined by that. As a person of faith, I believe that God made everybody for a purpose and everyone has a purpose. And a purpose-driven life is about And whether you're a person of faith or not, I think that a lot of studies show that a purpose-driven life Mm -hmm. is understanding who you are, leveraging your natural gifts and talents, finding something that you're passionate about and pouring all those natural gifts and talents into something you're passionate about and really building upon that and investing in yourself and in in your profession in that way. And you see return uh, on that, right? And so- That's what uh, politics was for me at the time. Just felt that uh, I do love living in D.C., which helps because I enjoy the city that I live in. I enjoy the lifestyle that I have. uh, But I also found meaningful, sustainable work in the city that I enjoy living in. And so I I find that at the end of the day, this is is what keeps me motivated every day. I think everybody that finds that uh, balance is is happy with, with their life and their work. And,
0: and that meant more political campaigning as opposed to human rights and advocacy. Is that, is that, is that right?
1: I didn't intend to necessarily be on political campaigns. I think I was always interested yeah. in advocacy work. I was always interested yeah. in the business of people, the business of people and ideas that that's essentially what I do. Right. Uh, I started in D.C. working at a trade association and I was doing advocacy work on behalf of the members of this trade association. And I was later recruited um, to to work on a political campaign in 2012. So I I worked for the Republican National Committee on a presidential in North Carolina. And I I really found Mm, something that I enjoyed doing. And uh, it was like my first huge foray at that level. Uh, to do that kind of work. And I worked really, really hard, but I enjoyed every minute of it. And I think that was an indication of sort of uh, a type of career that I enjoyed. Now, uh, I didn't uh, necessarily work another presidential after that, but I did work for um, the Republican State Leadership Committee at the time. Uh, I was asked to, you know, create uh, an initiative Mm -hmm. to recruit women and minority candidates for state level office. And uh, being a minority female myself, it was something that I was passionate about. So essentially, my job was to find diverse talents all over the country yeah. to be politically engaged, and all of that type of work tends to be partisan. So you know, you sort of pick a side and then you run with it. You, know?
0: you didn't really pick a side because you you, you you already you already grew up in a in a in a in a, in a, in a Republican environment, or, or, or was there a point at which you you had to take stock and say, oh, why am I? Leaning in this way, rather, like how, how did that happen? Because, mm-hmm. because in my, I, I, I'm not so familiar yeah. with the U.S. domestic politics, but in my head, a lot of the issues that you were dealing with, working on, are, are issues that typically I associate in my head. I associate more with the, 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 the kind of a more of a democratic uh, leaning.
1: Yeah. um Well, in terms of whether I was Republican or Democrat, because I did not. Grow up with a politically engaged family. Mm-hmm. I, I really didn't know whether I was or not. I hadn't really given it that much thought. And I said, "Well, you know, if I want to pursue a career in politics, if I want to work in D.C. I should figure out mm-hmm. yeah. where my views lie." It's just another level of getting to know yourself and understanding who you are. So I said, "Oh, how do I know if I'm Republican or Democrat? I don't know." So I want to think for myself. I'm very much an independent thinker. So I wasn't going to ask anybody. Well, who are we? No, it's who yeah, am yeah. I? That's not. That's the question. Is not. You Know the question is, who am I as an independent thinking person, as a free thinking person, you know, and where do I I land on the issue? So, <clears throat> you know, not, not having a lot of mentors in the business, maybe a few, but uh, not anyone that could tell me where I landed, I, I just sort of did my own research, you know, and I and I looked at uh, Iana Ross Layton's you know record versus Debbie Wasserman Schultz, and these were two congresswomen that were hmm. adjoining geographically in the area that I grew up and I just kind of like picked those two because they were in opposing parties. And I sort of looked at yeah. where they landed on most issues. And I thought, where do I, yeah. where do I land? And I determined that probably Ross Layton was more by speed and I, I liked her, her policies. And then I looked into the Republican party and I sort of looked at their platform and I was like, yeah, I think this is more or less what I agree with. and This is more my speed. So, you know, I think I'm probably Republican leaning at the very least then I told my parents like, well, I'm going to pursue a career in politics. And they're like, oh, okay, well, you know, do you know which party you're going to try to align with or work for? And I told them, like, you know, I think I'm, I think I'm probably more of a Republican. I mean, I've done some research on this and uh, they were like, oh, thank God. Yeah, we all are. I was like, okay, that was just them. You know, I I do think that over time, my parents really value independent thinking and they have, a range of different ideas about policy and politics, and so it's yeah. not as clear cut. We, but for me, that's that's how I did my own research, and then I found that actually pretty common in my community and where I came from. And so everyone is kind of a product yeah. of their yeah. environment in a way. But I've been now in DC doing something uh, like that for over a decade, and feel pretty confident in my views. And but I'm always uh, someone that really enjoys thinking about different elements of policy, and politics, and and especially having discussions with people who disagree with me so I can learn more. I really enjoy all that. And yeah. that's probably yeah. why I'm here, because I enjoy, you know, the business of ideas.
0: And you mentioned as well there's a big difference between the fans and the players, and that the fans typically stick to a, a, a team um, and the views are quite, uh, I would say, inflexible, or, or uh, there's a lot of emotion attached to a team. Whereas you're in a bit of a different space as a as a as a player where it it is much more about uh, policies and ways of working and and um, the currency is less ideology is much more about trust.
1: I think that um we tend to see uh, the American people it very much red or blue, but it really is not that the case at all. I think we have to give the voter mm-hmm. an enormous amount of credit. We have over three hundred and twenty five million people in the u s and only two major parties, right? So the spectrum of ideas within Mm, each party is vast and deep. And Mm. voters uh, that share that spectrum of ideas within each party is also vast and deep. Uh, But I think it's, it's fairly well known that, you know, people do tend to stick to their party For the most part, when voting, they're either team red or team blue. And then some people do vacillate between team red or team blue in certain elections. But they they do have a brand loyalty. But I do believe that most voters uh, do have a spectrum of ideas Mm -hmm. and affiliations. So there is some diversity in that sense. But of course, when you're working in politics, as I think is should be true for Uh, most working environments, you know, and relationships in a Mm -hmm. way, trust is really important. And I I do think that, you know, having lived in DC now uh, over 10 years and having developed a lot of different relationships, people from diverse set of backgrounds, uh, that the thing that I look for most in developing a relationship with somebody is Mm -hmm. can I trust them? And I don't think it should be something that can be dismissed by identity
0: you're you're somebody who you mentioned to me you, you really like to talk to people who are very very different from, from, from you so i'd I'd love to mm-hmm. maybe if you could share a little bit how, how that plays out also in your in your line of in your line of work and how do you maintain these relationships that can span across ideologies as well
1: hmm. i'm intellectually curious that's what it comes down to and I think because of my faith and also, you know, the fact that my father was a reverend, I do believe that all men were created in God's image. And I'm curious about other humans, the way they think, their background, their experience.
0: Yeah. and, and So that's how you can overcome the, I would say, I mean, the stereotypes that maybe people come up with, say, I'm I'm, I'm GOP, therefore I think a certain way.
1: Yeah. Look, I I mean, I I don't think it's just a matter of my belief in in faith. Like uh, there's many books and many behavior psychologists that are talking about, you know, biases and stereotypes and the way the brain works. Your brain functions in a certain kind of way to help you survive and make decisions quickly and assess things quickly. But unfortunately, some of the drawbacks of the way the the brain processes your surroundings have to Mm -hmm. be Mm -hmm. checked and rethought. So a lot of behavioral psychologists, of which I enjoy books like from Adam Grant or Malcolm Gladwell, where they look at how we approach the world in a certain kind of way and they teach us that instincts sometimes will lie to you or the best way for you to understand the world and to appreciate it is to recognize that you could be wrong or that... They may have something interesting that you didn't know before. And
0: yeah, there's a lot, 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 of really, really fascinating books on the on this topic. Even even things like ac- active listening actually, mm-hmm. ha- just highlighting how right. I mean, this was quite a revelation to me to to realize how how poor of a job I do in in, in, in listening, the kind of active effort that it takes to uh, to really pay attention, actually. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, Maybe so. You mentioned that that outside of your 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 busy busy work life, you still find time to uh, explore, uh, engaging with very very different people and read a lot. What else do you do to kind of uh, step away from the the game?
1: Uh, I'm a big foodie, so that's one. Uh, So I like to cook a lot. Uh, I also like to experiment a lot in the kitchen. (laughs) I'm the kind of person that thrives at farmers markets with exotic. Produce and interesting artisan craft. Uh, Over my travels in the United States, I've eaten some really interesting things. Uh, I remember I went to um, Pennsylvania, Dutch area, and uh, I almost bought like a pickled tripe. Yeah, like a Mennonite Amish farmer's market. And the guy was like, (laughs) I don't know if you want that. That's some old country type of, I said, yeah, yeah, I may. I'm, <laughs> I'm thinking about it. <laughs> I, I bought the pickled watermelon rinds instead. But that yeah, sexy. so I, I'm i a big, big foodie because I find that the concept of the way that we make food True. is very cultural. And by eating someone else's food or eating food made by someone else, I, I'm learning a little bit about them or I'm experiencing them in a different way. And that could be the microgreens, grown from my neighbor or that could be traveling to another country and you know trying monkey <laughs> brains i don't know like i mean you're experiencing another another person if they make you food you're definitely experiencing another person yeah. if you buy their products you're appreciating that person and uh i'm a big foodie and collector of spices right.
0: I, I really like this this uh, this insight around uh, if, if somebody offers you Food—it's a story in a way that they want to share, and this is a message actually that Anthony Bourdain used to say: um, that they never, never turn mm-hmm. away somebody with something, because it's like, it's it's like you're preventing them from sharing their story, even even if what they have to offer may, may, may be a little unappetizing at first sight. So,
1: if we can approach conversations the way that like mm-hmm. Andrew Zimmerman approaches, you know, <laughs> food, or Anthony Bourdain approach to the experience of food. I think we would learn a whole lot. I do think if somebody makes you something, and if it's something that nourishes you, or something that they feel nourishes you, and they serve it to you, um, they are having yeah. a conversation yeah. with you. And we would never, in many cases, you know, refuse someone's food for at their house for dinner. Then why would we shy away from yeah. listening to them yeah. when they have something yeah. important to say?
0: And Neri, I've, I've really enjoyed our conversation. And, um, I wanted to ask you if there's anything you wanted to, to share, um, either in general or, or, or uh, in particular with our G- GMAP, uh, GMAP community.
1: Yeah, I think I'd like to share how I end up in the GMAP community, uh, because it's very special for me and it sort of, um, kind of reflects a little bit of who I am, but, um, I was in, uh, Florida International University at the time and, uh, the, um, grandson yeah. of Hali Selassie yeah. and I think Ed- Edmias uh, forgot his first name but he was the grandson of Hali Selassie and he was a, um, a student of uh, Fletcher So Hali Selassie Barnes, for, for
0: those who don't know is uh, for, for, for very much revered uh, for, former leader of Ethiopia.
1: Yep. As leader of the Ethiopia he also um, inspired a whole religious movement mm-hmm. of Rastafarians mm-hmm. in Jamaica. And uh, Rastafarians in Jamaica, not being an expert on their theology, but understanding that they revered Haile Selassie as a sort of a godlike figure, the fact that his grandson was going to be in South Florida uh, speaking on a subject was going to attract every Rastafarian south of Orlando. Like I knew that was (laughs) that's what was going to happen, and I was curious about the Rastafarians, so I went to the speech. Uh, that his uh, grandson, and he was, he just had an impact because he was telling his uh, bio. I only went to the event because I was fascinated by Rastafarian culture, and I was interested in being in a room full of Rastafarians. And so that's why I went to the lecture. And uh, when I went to the lecture and uh, he was explaining his bio, and he said he went to the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy. At the time, I was interested in being a diplomat. And when he said that, I thought, huh, well, if Fletcher School is where the grandsons (laughs) of godlike figures who run countries, if that's where they go, that's the school I'm going to go to as well. (laughs) And and that's how I decided that Fletcher was my uh, dream school to attend because he said it in his bio, just like a one sentence line, something just hit me. And uh, the rest of the lecture was very interesting. Many people asked about his grandfather, but um, as, as expected. But I remembered only that he went to Fletcher.
0: What is this Fletcher? Thought, where is this
1: Fletcher? This is amazing. <laughs> what is this Fletcher? Like, this is where I need to go. This seems like the place to be, you know? And uh, I didn't get a chance to go to Fletcher at the time. Uh, due to some other circumstances related to the university and my transition from my bachelor's into working life, but yeah, uh, I always thought about Fletcher and I always dreamed about going to Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy. But I, I never thought that that was possible for me because you know it was in Boston, and by this time I had uh, done a couple of things, including live in Paris for a year and leave Miami and move to D.C. I wasn't, I wasn't going to pick up and move to Boston. I couldn't do that, but um, I was always, I had always dreamed of going to Fletcher. And then one day, um, I was in Aspen, Colorado Mm -hmm. at an Aspen Institute festival of the ideas, great organization. Um, and, uh, somebody there was there with me and she was telling me about her boyfriend that went to this graduate program and she explained the graduate program and it sounded like a really great deal. And I was like, and I can do this from anywhere. Yes, absolutely. And I said, please, where is this uh, program? It sounds amazing." She's like, it's at Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy. And I just about (laughs) fell out of my chair. I was like, you're kidding. And I'm like, repeat, are you sure? Boston? She's like, yes. And I was like, oh my God, I thought I was going to cry. I said, that is where I've always wanted to go to school. This is a perfect program at my dream school. Sign me up. And I think during my entire interview process, I basically repeated the story (laughs) multiple times. (laughs) And I was like, you must let me in. I mean, this, you know, I belong here. (laughs) You know, I didn't even really like, try to apply. I was just (laughs) like, no, no, you have to, you have to accept. And this is mine. this is for me. You know, that
0: was, uh, it was was like then because uh, with such high expectations, like, uh, yeah, yeah. What was the impression? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, this is kind of like why I'm in the business that I'm in, you know, I just kind of came in with the interview and I was like, it behooves (laughs) you to accept me into this program. (laughs) <laughs> you would be well suited you know <laughs> to make me part of this team you know and i i basically laid out the case why it was to yeah, fletcher's yeah. benefit, you know to uh to bring me in and uh, then make them offers <laughs> they can't refuse and you know stuff like you know i was i pulled out all the stops and i was very determined uh to go to fletcher and it was uh it was a really great move i and, and uh and i really enjoyed the curriculum and everything but the one thing I did not expect uh, from my experience was that uh, the curriculum, while excellent, was second mm-hmm. to the network that I that I built. And the people that I met, which I found yeah. so interesting, yeah. fascinating, um, diverse, and my interest in other people and other experiences, I really got a full sense of that at Fletcher in a way I probably would have been able to in another school so i i think that's the thing yeah, that yeah, i enjoyed
0: yeah. the most yeah I, I share that as well and this is actually what what prompted uh christian and i to set up this this podcast is to create more opportunities to 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 hear from each other and meet uh, meet people uh, or have interesting conversations thanks for listening please follow us and subscribe wherever you get your podcast from to be the first to know when new episodes come out